In the summer of 2018, the convergence of music, sports, and politics in Argentina fueled the hit of the summer. A politically charged popular song and soccer chant aimed at the then-president Mauricio Macri. Before we get too far into this episode, we should note that this episode includes explicit language in some of the musical examples and in our discussion of song lyrics. Incorporating melodic fragments from the 1973 Patriotic March, titled Es Tiempo de Algranos, or It's Time for Us to Get Happy, the 2018 hit of the summer was a vulgarly worded critique of President Macri and his controversial socioeconomic policies. Over the course of several months, the song permeated many aspects of Argentinian society, from arrangements performed by murgas or neighborhood-associated carnival performance groups, to collective chants in the soccer stadium, what for many is the center of Argentinian social and political life. Musical expression is often at the center of collective experiences. From chanting political dissent to the sonic revelry of parades and carnival processions, participatory musicking, or what one of our guests, Eduardo Herrera, calls sounding in synchrony, is a form of collective expression that unifies communities. Through the lens of contested sonic spaces of sporting events, however, which often serve as battlegrounds for competing national allegiances, cultural identities, and political alliances, participatory sonic practices can contribute to differentiation, division, and discrimination as much as they support unification. You're listening to Ethnomusicology Today, a podcast produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology devoted to the exploration of contemporary issues in global music studies. I'm Trevor Harvey. In this episode, Eduardo Herrera and Michael O'Brien discuss their research into collective music making in Argentina. Grounded by Herrera's article, Masculinity, Violence, and De-Individuation in Argentine Soccer Chants, The Sonic Potentials of Participatory Sounding in Synchrony, which was published in the fall 2018 issue of the journal Ethnomusicology, as well as O'Brien's article, From Soccer Chant to Sonic Meme, Sound, Politics, and Parody in Argentina's Hit of the Summer, published in the November 2020 issue of Music Cultures. We examine the possibilities for political action and problems of toxic masculinity within participatory musicing practices of Argentinian soccer chants and neighborhood-based murga ensembles. Eduardo and Michael, welcome to Ethnomusicology Today. Of course. Uh, thank you for having us over here. This is a fun project and, and a podcast that I really appreciate being in. Uh, my name is Eduardo Herrera. I am an associate professor at Rutgers University uh, in New Jersey. I specialize in Latin American music in general, and I guess uh, there's two areas of expertise that I have. One is elite art worlds and uh, avant-garde, probably people that are now in their 80s, but that were very active in the 60s and 70s, and uh, music in sports and games, especially regarding soccer chants. Thank you. And Michael O'Brien. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here, a part of this conversation as well. Uh, my name is Michael O'Brien. I'm an associate professor of music at the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, my research has been, like a lot of those, largely based in Argentina, um, working on different kinds of popular music and cultural politics, uh, from schools of popular music, tango and folklore, to um, my big current project, of which the the soccer piece is kind of a, a side interest or a natural pseudopod out of that large amorphous project, is on Murga Porteña, which is the carnival tradition of uh, working class Buenos Aires. Great. Thank you. So I want to start with, actually, uh, both of you brought this up. Um, uh, Michael, you mentioned you're interested in, in or, or some, some work in uh, soccer uh, music and, and chants and music related to soccer. And Eduardo, you talked about uh, sports in general, too. Um, what, what drew your attention to the study of soccer chants? There was uh, uh, almost an, inex an inescapable force uh, happening in Buenos Aires every time I would visit. And uh, it was, you know, every day there was a match, like the, the spirit of the city changes, right? Whether people like soccer or not, it's very hard to escape. Uh, and I grew up liking soccer and going to soccer stadiums. And the first time I went, I was shocked by how much energy there were in the stadiums in comparison to Colombia, where I grew up. Um, even though in Colombia, there's a lot happening. It was definitely not at the level of Argentina. And being interested as well in sound studies, it, this kind of started clicking really fast. Like there is something really special happening here in the ways that sound is being used in the stadium. So, so that was my starting point. It was during other research that I do in Argentina that that interest uh, became just like almost inevitable. Yeah, I think like Eduardo, I didn't I didn't set out to study uh, musicking and soccer at all. In fact, and I don't have a, a, I didn't grow up with soccer. I grew up in in Wisconsin um, with very little interest in uh, professional athletics of any kind. Um, but you really can't be in in this cityscape without being aware of it. And you know, even if that's just um, why suddenly is traffic stopped for hours. And I, I feel like the culture that probably starts in the soccer stadium, or at least that's where most people learn at first, gives you these kinds of uh, aesthetic resources or expressive resources so that, you know, the, the af and I love that your work draws so much on sort of the affective component of this. What does it mean? What does it feel like to be sounding in synchrony? Um, that whether that thing is you're insulting an opposing team or you're standing outside of Congress demanding that they legalize abortion or, uh, or you're standing, you know, cutting off traffic with your trade union um, or protesting police violence, right? That, you, that these, these same tools, these same kinds of ways of using sounds and also I would say music, you know, like uh, I think that that specificity is sometimes kind of important that, that, protests become musical in surprising ways. And I think it wouldn't happen except that that way of musicking together um, vocally, right? As just a part of what Sunday afternoon looks like um, is, is so pervasive in urban space.
Michael, you just brought up uh, Eduardo's use of the phrase sounding in synchrony. And Eduardo, you, you also pair that phrase with moving in synchrony, which I think comes back to this sort of tying back to soccer. There's a physicality and physical beingness. Could you maybe elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, I started reading more about the, the studies that, that deal with synchronized movement, for instance, in the military, or considering how also this this kind of moving and sounding happens in religions, right? Like when, when we see each other doing the same sounds and doing the same movements, uh, growing up in a, in a half-Catholic, half-Jewish family, I saw kind of like this both things happening very often where the prayer itself is almost like an automatic, right? It just goes in autopilot. And, and what really matters is that you're doing it with others and that you're kneeling at the same time or that you're moving your body at the same time. So it kind of informed that reading of what was going on in the stadium as this is why that togetherness and that sense of community emerges and, and takes over individuality, right? Like that group feeling becomes more important in that instance, that individuality. So, so that's where the origin of that, that kind of idea of synchrony in both sounding and movement almost as inseparable. Um, thinking about sort of that embodied nature of, of synchronicity, right? So that like a lot of times in the sound studies literature, we talk about uh, resonance. We, we, we bracket the ways in which um, sound is uh, simultaneously created and simultaneously experienced. But uh, to, to focus only on that to the exception of the other ways in which bodies are also synchronous at the same time, misses something really interesting. And I, I saw, I thought about it a lot of the when I saw this, uh, I was down for Carnival 2019, the last one before, you know, the world shut down for COVID. And um, there was a moment in one of these uh, Murga Carnival Group's performances where they reference the president and they start singing just for a moment, the the hit of the summer, this, this uh, soccer chant about Mauricio Macri, right? And I watched in the audiences about half the people picked it up. And the way they picked it up actually wasn't singing with, but doing the arm extended thing. It's a way of, um, there's something performative about it visually, uh, as well as, right, going along with the, the sonorous. And Michael, I think that there's something interesting in the ways that our projects differ, because the, the article we're discussing here about uh, the sonic meme presents a kind of participation that is sequential right it doesn't happen at the same time it's like i do it and then you do it and it's kind of like karaoke where yeah. you're expected to follow up right but but you have to do it but in the stadium of course that movement is crucial because even if you don't know the chant you have to show you have to you have to uh demonstrate fandom uh and and the initial way has to be body movement and then you kind of fake the lyrics down to the point where you eventually actually know the lyrics uh, so, so you have to grab into something, and there's always something to grab. Uh, the the one of the roles of the people that actually probably enjoy the the game the least in terms of what's happening on the field, those rousers that are looking towards the audience, not towards the field, is to see what sector is not moving and chanting, and start telling them, "Come on, come on, you know, sing, sing," and uh, and it's interesting how that that aspect of participation. It's, it's, a, it's a breaking point because that sonic meme requires that sequentiality while the activity in, on the stadium or inside the stadium or in the streets, uh, like when you talk about the videos of, of people in soccer matches, but also in basketball matches and in, uh, in, the, in the subway, uh, that actually is that kind of participation. So you move from one to the other. And it's very interesting. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, absolutely. 
up a little bit. We've referenced several times the 2018 hit of the summer. Michael, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Give us a little background to uh, this. Yeah. So this was my my one sort of side project. Um, and I was watching all of this happen from the U.S. You know, it was the middle of our academic year. I wasn't doing field work at the time. Um, but I remember that uh, one of the things I think that's really curious about the soccer stadium, given that so much of what's going on there is about contesting power and contesting right to space, right? There, Eduardo writes really nicely about the ways in which occupying someone else's space is, you know, a kind of a form of symbolic violence. Um, there's something that's sort of inherently political about that. And it's and, um, the machinations of uh, soccer clubs are things that lend themselves very well to politics. In fact, presidents, being a president of an important soccer club is often a springboard to other kinds of politics. But given that, it's really quite unusual um, to see people singing in the soccer stadium about things that are not soccer. It's specifically about politics kind of in the narrower sense of governmental politics. Um, and I remember hearing Eduardo's first SEM paper, you know, as this article is probably in process, and, and people asked him, he said, you know, and, and yeah, um, it's strange how politics, how absent that kind of politics is from these topics. And I had just that week seen um, on my Facebook feed, some of my Morga friends posting videos of people singing, Mauricio Macri, la puta que te parió, right? This um, uh, chant that's it's just swearing at the president um, because at the time, because he was the uh, former president of Boca Juniors who was uh, winning in a way that uh, the opponents felt was unfair. I had no idea what it was. People were swearing about the president in the soccer stadium. I mean, there are lots of reasons why uh, working class people would have been upset with Macri at that point. He's sort of a neo neoliberal who just gutted the welfare state um, and gave the police carte blanche to to beat people up. Um, you know, there was plenty to, to complain about. Um, but you know, it's, and, and it's a weird little melody. It's it's in harmonic minor. There's a leap of a step and a half in the middle of it. You know, it's it's not. The sort of thing that you expect to hear in, in soccer chants. So it, it was back of my head. And then several months later, on the um, International Association for the Study of Popular Music Latin American Listserv, I saw, I, maybe it wasn't there. I think, again, it was a Facebook friend who's a, a musician said, you know, it, it was essentially kind of like this instructional video for, for all, all the musicians who want to join in. And she had posted that um, someone had transcribed that melody um, with just the, the, the title MMLPQTP, right? The, the initials of this phrase, which is obscene, um, calling out the president. Um, I thought, well, what on earth is going on? And, and soon I started to see that essentially this chant had first gone viral. It's, it's uh, very unusual that um, a, a chant and particularly the lyrics might jump from one 
team to another. That's part of what it means to be a good inchala is to have great, inventive, original, massive corpus of songs, which is why San Lorenzo is, is the best for these things, right? Um, but it, it was jumping around and you started to see it in, you know, audience who are waiting for, for a rock concert to start or people who are waiting for a subway to show up. Um, and then there were threats that because this song is obscene, that the National Referees Union was, was going to cut off games if, if fans started chanting it um, because of uh, discriminatory language. Um, now, now, literally what the song, what the chant says is, Mauricio Macri, you son of a whore. Right? So the question, of course, is discriminatory towards whom? Um, and I think maybe it didn't make the article, um, but my favorite response to all of this came from, it was a tweet by a, a sex worker and an advocate for sex, sex workers' rights who, who tweeted about all of this, Las putas insistimos, Macri no es hijo nuestro which is to say, <laughs> we whores insist he's no son of ours. Um, but, um, <laughs> but partially as a result then of, of this sort of threat of censorship, you started to see musicians um, transform this melody, sometimes with words, many times just in instrumental versions, um, it, signify on it, right? And, and kind of the first one that got the ball rolling so far as I was able to determine was a classical pianist, um, who does this kind of set of theme and variations. You hear a little Chopin in there, you know, you hear a little Rachmaninoff in there. Um, that, that melody is not original to the soccer stadium. It, it comes from this sort of little-known, um, he would probably be upset if I called him a one-hit wonder, but a guy who who is mostly known for this patriotic march. So there's this great irony that, that the source of this melody was written um, during the time when Perón was returning from exile right before the dictatorship in the 70s. Um, and it's singing about, you know, let's all celebrate um, with with uh, noisemakers um, and singing, you know, that, that good times are ahead Sadness will be behind us. We've just left one military dictatorship and they didn't know that another one was coming. Um, but nobody remembered that song. They'd heard this this melody with particularly that the end of that phrase, la puta que te parió, it had been used in chants here and there throughout the years. And that's all anyone knew about it. Um, but so pervasive became the version of that with the president's name that very quickly um, everyone heard those words. Um, and I think there's no greater um, example of that than this is sort of, I, I start my article with this and it's a little bit like for my Colombian friend here, right? It's a little bit like when you, when you read 100 Years of Solitude and it opens up with Aurelia Bonilla in front of the firing squad, right? Like we, we see the end of the story first. And the end of the story is that on national TV, if you had turned on, in, or I think it was early March 2018, you would have seen that it was Italian cooking day and they had a house band playing Tarantellas, right? And, and they actually played this melody of the, of the hit of the summer transformed into a Tarantella. I counted, it was 16 seconds of melody, nothing else. And it just about got the show canceled. Because how dare you insult the president on a national state-run channel uh, in this kind of way? 
and and it meant the end of that musician's uh, you know it had a running every time they cooked Italian they'd call him up which in Argentina with all the Italian immigrants it was a you know couple time a year gig that will never happen again because the melody so clearly signified not its original words but the contrafacta Both of you have, have written about and talked a little about sort of ex the expressions of masculinity. Can you talk a little bit more about that, whether in the context of Murgas or also just more generally in the context of soccer soundscapes and soccer chants? Uh, this, there, there's this song as, as a good example, I think. The song uh, El Tano Pastita, right? And El Tano refers to the Italian. Right, Italian tano is a way to call it's a fond way to call Italians, and pastita means like it's referring to pasta, and it's a it's a cumbia villera, which is one of the many variants of cumbia across the Americas, uh, and the Argentinian one is associated with with uh, the villa, the shanty town to some degree, and so this song is transformed into the stadium, and uh, what we're gonna hear now is a little bit of that. Tano Pastita song, the original one, and then the version from the stadium. This in particular is sang by Huracan, which is a team uh, whose main rivals are San Lorenzo de Almagro. The lyrics of the song, and, and you could translate them something like this, we're waiting here for the people from La Gloriosa. La Gloriosa is the name of the opponents, right? We're waiting here for the people of La Gloriosa, that they come here to our neighborhood to look for their things. Here we go back to that materiality of stealing the other team's banners, stealing the other team's bombo. That would be huge. Like losing your bombo is like a, is losing a part of your like pride. It's it's really uh, kind of like I don't know like at least for movies stealing somebody's mascot from their fraternity sorority. I I don't know how that's worked. I, I didn't grow up here, but something like that. <laughs> Uh, and then follows, at all bajo flores we're gonna set on fire, right? Your neighborhood we're gonna just set on fire. Uh, che Cuervo, it's the nickname of these fans, the Cuervos, the, the crows, uh, snitches, we're go you're going to be running away. Now, the, the reference to snitch is a very difficult one in a, in a country that has a, a history and a memory of the dictatorship, right? The snitch is, is one of the worst things that you can be because you're, you're betraying you know, your friends, your people, your, your colleagues. Uh, hey Cuervo, we are telling you we're going to kill you. So now suddenly the, the, the aggression becomes not just we're going to burn the things we steal in your neighborhood, but we're actually going to kill you. You came to our neighborhood with police. Uh, we have your bombos and we have your banners. Uh, hey, Cuervo, her crow, uh, snitch, you are running everywhere. You're, you're a wimp, right? So, so suddenly the way that... This symbolic violence gets transformed into a in very long chant. If you notice, it was not just like, let's go, Reds, let's go. Nothing like that. <laughs> it is kind of involved. 
and and here it it, it touches upon several issues of of of, of uh, imagined violence that does sometimes take place, right? And this imagined violence, this is one of the many chants, but this imagined violence often is, is associated with a particular way of demonstrating masculinity in this concept of aguante, of resilience, of, of putting up with difficulties of like a stoic endurance. I come from uh, an understanding of participatory music making as part of a field, right? Like a spectrum that is proposed by by Thomas Torino. And uh, one of the things that I noticed, Torino, who was my advisor back in, in, in grad school, one of the things that I noticed is that Torino was uh, looking at the power that music had to create that sense of community in a very positive light. And I kept thinking when I approached soccer, this is, this is, one case in which this is not necessarily uh, positive. This is a case in which the fact that that sense of community and togetherness emerges allows for not so great things to happen, including say saying things that would be unthinkable as an individual. Uh, and I, I was thinking that I would be next to someone that, you know, was clearly not homophobic, that was clearly not xenophobic, and suddenly in the stadium, they would feel comfortable just saying this really homophobic and really xenophobic things. It's funny that uh, that Macri with the, the hit of the summer was kind of like pushing or the Macri government for some sort of censorship using this league of uh, like anti-defamation kind of like policies because they're rarely called into action except with anti-Semitism and sometimes with xenophobia, but not really with homophobia. Homophobia is like just fine almost. And, and that's very problematic. Um, and so so I wanted to look at what was it about uh, this space? So I went to read about it in sociology and in psychology. Like, what is it that people uh, consider um, when they're thinking about uh, unacceptable collective behaviors, right? Mob mentality. And I started finding that the literature addresses all sorts of different sensory input, but just races on the idea of sound. It's just basically, oh, if it's loud and if it's noisy, then that's part of the, the triggering, uh, you know, uh, for this kind of mob mentality. I, I love the way that Eduardo's article gives us such an important counterpoint, right, to the, to the celebratory nature of, of our spirit, I think, in which I take Torino's work in that way. Um, and it's, I, I'm really convinced by the argument he makes there. And I wonder then if I could in the spirit of a counterpoint to the counterpoint, um, one of the things I'm thinking about in the ways in which de-individuation works in the murga is that, um, so every murga is responsible for presenting a series of songs every year, right? Which uh, Some of which at least are topical. And um, even though generally they're written by one person, sometimes sometimes there are groups that are really committed to assembly level sort of debate and, and all of these things. Um, generally, nobody knows outside of the murga, certainly no one is ever credited as an individual. Um, the idea is that the song belongs to the murga, and when we sing it, we sing it as a murga. And as a result, I've seen some really beautiful ways in which that moment of writing, a, every the centerpiece of every murga performance is a critique song. This is the point where we're going to, you know, sort of 
point at the thing that is the problem. And, I, and, I, and an interesting addition to this has been uh, last year or two years ago in La Plata, uh, south of Buenos Aires, the, the team Gimnasia y Esgrima de La Plata, Gimnasia y Esgrima La Plata, Club de Gimnasia y Esgrima La Plata, um, the team uh, subsection, the subdivision of, gen, of, uh, of Sección de Género, the gender section, started a campaign precisely the called Yo no canto eso, I don't sing that. And it was pointing out uh, this kind of gap in issues that are not being discussed because people sing them without thinking, especially homophobic, and uh, especially that to some degree condone uh, violence or domestic violence or, or violence against women. And, and I think that in general, feminism in, in Argentina is incredibly strong and very active and, and you know, politically powerful. Uh, and Argentina in general has been way ahead in a lot of legislative processes than, than a place like the U.S., right? I mean, they've had uh, gay marriage for decades and, and you know, self-definitions of gender, all, all sorts of different uh, laws like this and, and education, laws about sexual education, things like this. And I think that there is a space in which people are realizing that this practice the sonic practices matter what we chant matter right and if it's either self-realization that i agree or disagree or should i learn more about this or if it's noticing hey what i am saying is not just something we chant is is you know demeaning my cousin who happens to be gay right or you start like going back to the individualized body to one that realizes these are true people that we're singing about here, people that have suffered through domestic violence or that have suffered uh, through, uh, you know, discrimination for through homophobia, like all of these aspects start kicking back in. So there is a type of, of, of change that is possible. It might be slow, but, but it is happening. And I think that there's a, a, a spin that is starting to happen into this, this chanting not necessarily because the article seemed like this is a bad thing in the end, like soccer chanting is horrible. But there is a positive light at the end. There is a kind of masculinity that emerges that is much more responsible and engaged and, yeah, less toxic. And it's, it's, that's really interesting and, and great to learn. Um, and it's, I guess the, the similarity there with, with the Murga is that it's happening sort of almost dialectically so that there are these moments of of de-individualization, of, of collective effervescence, of, you know, the moment of performance, and then there is a moment of contemplation, right? And so change isn't happening in this, in this moment of founding and synchrony, but there has to be some sort of distance at which we, we think about our relationship to a collective. I think there's, there's one other sort of small detail here that's important, which is when we're talking about fandom, really, like, these institutions are not teams, they're clubs. And to, to go to the stadium, right, you have to, you, you, well, you don't have to, but you become a member, you pay an annual subscription. Um, and so that the, a, a soccer team really, in some ways, um, functions more like a, like a local, maybe it's overstating the case to say a mutual assistance society, but um, you don't just go to the games, you have access to the gym, you have access to the space where you might come uh, your mm -hmm. kids might come and play foosball or, or or soccer. You know, they there are morgas that rehearse within soccer clubs that have formal relationships. Some of them have like soup kitchen kinds of things 
Um, so both Murgaza and, and mm-hmm. the soccer clubs, right, have this function in the community where um, they have a, I guess it's social capital rather than, than cultural transactional capital in the case, right? It's about um, instrumentalizing those um, social connections uh, towards the, the potentially mutual benefit of uh, people at very different levels of the organization and the neighborhood itself. Right. And I think you're absolutely right in that, uh, honestly, soccer is just the most visible branch yeah. because of this broad appreciation of soccer. But most of these clubs also have like a basketball team or a ping pong team or a, or yoga. Right, you know, right? right. Like they might have all sorts of activities. Huh. And, and, and they are spaces for, for those networks of solidarity that Michael's are pointing out here. So, so the, the weight of this institution goes beyond just simply, you know, that fandom of sports of, you know, the Patriots or, you know, the Raiders or whatever. It, it goes beyond that. At Murga and Carnival become also the reference point to successful fiesta in the stadium, right? Like your goal is to have that little experience that Saturday afternoon or that Sunday at noon or that Wednesday night, whatever it is, have a little bit of that taste of what happens when a Murga is full on during Carnival, right? And so there's this idea of the fiesta and and a successful uh, participation in the stadium and a successful uh, joyous occasion resembles that once a year, you know, moment. You know, essentially a murga is a open, anyone can join it, usually neighborhood-based um, organization that it, we don't really have a, a single English word concept. So this, it, in, it includes uh, musicians, drummers, percussionists, other kinds of musicians. It includes people who sing. It includes people who recite poetry. It includes people who dance. Um, it includes people who uh, carry flags and other implements during sort of entry and, and exit parades. Um, but it, the sort of overall structure of it, you know, it's, it's working class art and it is, um, it is often the only artistic um, facet of a person's life, right? So many of these people don't necessarily consider themselves musicians or they don't consider themselves artists, except in the context of carnival. there are parts of it that are that are drumming and synchronized dancing uh, and then there are parts of it that are um, group song solo song uh, and recitation of poetry uh, all of which are created anew every year and which basically um, speak satirically to uh, current events make fun of people in power um, as well as just sort of get everyone excited about having a good time Can ethnomusicological methods and perspectives offer uh, to not just the study of soccer chants, but but sports culture more generally? Um, because I because it is I think it is a space that has largely been under uh, researched in, in ethnomusicology. I think that one it leads to overall what ethnomusicology can potentially do, and I think the study of expressive culture allows us to understand those lenses that we use to interpret, right? That, that to interpret what happens, right? Those, those webs of signification, right? That, that, that gives us those glasses of the others, right? And, and see how is it that they're understanding this, this particular uh, 
situation. I remember one time after talking to someone after, you know, for 90 minutes in the match and sitting next to them, uh, seeing them throw rocks at a car that had a baby inside because they disagreed with the with the player of their own team because they thought they had played poorly. And I was like, how is it possible? Right? Like to me, it was incomprehensible. But at the same time, I wanted to understand what was framing that action as possible because I, I, I didn't understand it. And I think that that's where, where that interest in music, not as a cause of violence necessarily, there's no cause and effect, but it is part of the framing apparatus of understanding violent actions in many occasions. And it's, it's worth looking at it as, as such, not just music, expressive culture in general, I think provides that frame. Um, but I think what, what work like Eduardo's reminds me is that one, um, there's, there's a big difference between um, the life of fans Right and and the institutions. I, I think there are deep uh, ethical problems with professional soccer in Argentina, like there are with professional sports in many countries. Right and um, and yet, I my understanding of people who don't benefit from that system, of you know the affective and imaginative uh, and, and imaginal and, and social ties of. Um, Poor people in Barrios and, and Buenos Aires is enriched by the fact that people like Eduardo are, are taking the soccer stadium seriously as a place where culture happens. And I can only assume that the same is true um, in many other places because of what a huge part of people's affective lives um, sports fandom is in other places. And and I think maybe one of the things that's, that's suggested to me, oh, that there's more there than, than I would have guessed is looking at uh, this COVID moment we're in, right? People are playing professional games in empty stadiums and they're piping in the sound of fictive crowds because they recognize that even for the players themselves, the, the sonic, it, it doesn't happen without that component of what's going on. Eduardo Herrera is an associate professor of musicology at Rutgers University in New Jersey. He specializes in contemporary musical practices from Latin America, the Caribbean, and Latinx peoples in the United States from historical and ethnographic perspectives. His article, Masculinity, Violence, and Deindividuation in Argentine Soccer Chants, The Sonic Potentials of Participatory Sounding and Synchrony, can be found in the fall 2018 issue of the journal Ethnomusicology. Michael O'Brien is an associate professor of ethnomusicology at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. His research focuses on the intersection of Latin American popular music and cultural politics, including the study of contemporary tango and folk music, schools of popular music, and most recently, the carnival tradition of Moriga Porteña. He has also published on the role of music and sound in contemporary U.S. politics. His article, From Soccer Chant to Sonic Meme, Sound, Politics, and Parody in Argentina's Hit of the Summer, can be found in the fall 2020 issue of Music Cultures. Ethnomusicology Today is produced with the help and support of many people. Thanks to our student research and production assistants, Dean Weib, Cheyenne McGuire, and Katie Greiner, and advisory board members, Harry Berger, Portia Maltby, Les Gay, Martin Stokes, David Kaminsky, and Leon Garcia Corona. Additional support and encouragement has been provided by SEM First Vice President Alejandro Madrid and SEM Executive Director Stephen Stemfley. 
This podcast is produced by the Society for Ethnomusicology in collaboration with KRUI and with support from the University of Iowa College of Liberal Arts and Sciences and the Iowa Center for Research by Undergraduates. 